Please be seated. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans, chapter 11. And I'm going to read and preach verses 25 through 27 this morning. These verses, as I said, are about God's purpose to save all his chosen people, all the ransomed church of God, as we sing, including the fullness of the Gentiles, as Paul puts it, as well as, quote-unquote, all Israel. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in and all Israel will be saved. We'll talk about what that means, what he's referring to. But I think this can be a great encouragement to us this morning because we live in a world that is hostile to the true God and to his true gospel. We have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we have an enemy within, don't we? Our own sin. And all of that makes it hard to evangelize. All of that makes it easy to get discouraged. Uh, It sometimes feels like team church is losing and team world is winning. We feel sort of powerless and weak and ineffective in our witness at times to our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers, family members and friends. And I think it's easy for us to get discouraged. But the word of God reminds us this morning that God's purpose is to save all his chosen people. Every last one of them. The fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel. All those he has purposed to save will be saved and none will be lost. All the elect will be gathered in and none will be left behind. I think that can encourage us and embolden us really in our witness It can also help us to trust in the sovereignty of God over the salvation of sinners. It can grow us in gratitude for our own salvation if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. And it can increase our anticipation of the day when the last one will be gathered in and our Lord will return. God's purpose to save all his chosen people will be accomplished. That can be a great encouragement to us from God's word this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll give our attention to his word together. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you that your purpose will be accomplished. It cannot be thwarted. And as we consider what that purpose is together from these verses, we pray that you would give us understanding and insight into your word And help each one of us to take it to heart and to apply it to our lives. By your grace and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans chapter 11, reading verses 25 through 27. This is the word of God. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Three points to guide us through the passage in your sermon notes there. Wise in your own sight, this mystery and the deliverer will come. We'll take each one of those in turn. So number one, wise in your own sight. At the beginning of verse 25 there, we read again, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. So Paul is still addressing the Gentile Christians in Rome here. He'd already told them in the previous verses not to be prideful about their salvation. In verse 18, he told them, do not be arrogant toward the branches, toward the unbelieving Israelites who were broken off from the olive tree because of their unbelief. And at the end of verse 20, he told them, so do not become proud, but fear. And sticking with that theme, he now says here in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. In other words, I want you to be aware of this mystery so that you won't be wise in your own sight. And we'll talk about the mystery in a minute, but it includes the fact that the Gentiles are not more special or more important than the Jews. So, lest the Gentiles be wise in their own sight, Paul wants them to be aware of this mystery. And again, we'll come to that in just a minute, but I wanted to pause on this for a few minutes here at the beginning because I think it's healthy for us to be challenged by this and to really hear this, really consider this. The Bible is very clear that we should not be wise in our own sight. That is, we should not see ourselves as wise and everyone else as fools. We should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, chapter 12, verse 3 says. We should never be wise in our own sight, chapter 12, verse 16. Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, some well-known verses, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So, in light of what Paul says here, I want this to be an occasion this morning for us to challenge ourselves and examine ourselves to see what extent, to what extent we might be being wise in our own eyes. Ask yourself, Am I humble? Am I teachable? Ask yourself, am I approachable? Am I correctable? If an elder or a fellow church member came to you with a loving concern about something in your life or in your character, 
Would you be willing to listen to what they have to say, to really listen to them? Or would you be tempted to think, what do they know? I think we all have that sinful instinct in us sometimes, sadly. But that's being wise in our own eyes. That's not being humble, teachable, correctable. Ask yourself, do I seek counsel from others? And do I take counsel from others? Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. We should be wise, but we shouldn't be wise in our own eyes. That's like a student grading his own exam, just writing A plus at the top, or writing his own report card. I think I deserve straight A's rather than submitting humbly to his teachers. Let's all of us not be wise in our own eyes. Pursue wisdom, to be sure, but pursue humility along with it. As your wisdom goes up, your pride should go down. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We shouldn't be wise in our eyes. He should be wise in our eyes. In him, in Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is infinite in wisdom. So, just in light of what Paul says here at the beginning, let's not be wise in our own eyes. Let's be humble and let's fix our eyes on Jesus who is infinitely wise. So Paul doesn't want these Gentile believers to be wise in their own sight. And to help them with that, he wants to make sure they understand this mystery. And let's consider that now under our second main point, this mystery. And look again at verse 25, what he says there about this mystery. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what's he saying here? What is this mystery he's referring to? Well, in order to understand the mystery, we need to understand three things the three things he says here. First, what does he mean by a partial hardening has come upon Israel? You see that that's that first part of what he says there. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Well, that's really what he's been talking about already earlier in this chapter, where God hardened the unbelieving Israelites in their unbelief. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. The fact that there's a partial hardening implies that there's a partial softening, doesn't it? So while the unbelieving Israelites were hardened, the elect remnant of Israelites were softened, as it were. Romans 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 
So there's a partial hardening and there's a partial softening in that sense. A hardening of the non-elect Israelites and a softening of the elect Israelites. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, Paul says, that's going to happen, quote, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this partial hardening and partial softening of Israel is going to happen all the way until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the full number of the elect from among the Gentiles, until every last one of them is brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the time period Paul's referring to here is really the whole time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. During all that time, there's a hardening of non-elect Israel and a softening of elect Israel and a gathering in of elect Gentiles during all that period of time. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And remember what Paul's already said about how the Gentiles coming in is designed by God to make the elect remnant of ethnic Israelites jealous, which will lead to their conversion. And so, thirdly, the third thing about this mystery, verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, as I said a few weeks ago, some understand this phrase, all Israel will be saved, to refer to the conversion of most of the Jews near the end of time. But I think what Paul means here is not the conversion of most of the Jews near the end of time, but the conversion of a remnant of Jews all throughout time. Throughout the time between the first and second comings of Christ, throughout that time, some Israelites are being hardened and some Israelites are being softened and the Gentiles are coming in. And God uses the Gentiles coming in to provoke the Israelites to jealousy and to lead them to saving faith in the Messiah. And in this way, the elect remnant of Israelites will be saved. In this way, all Israel, in that sense, will be saved. The fullness of the elect of Israel will be saved. All those elect remnants down through time, between the first and second comings of Christ, will be saved. So all Israel is parallel to the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles will be saved, meaning all the elect among the Gentiles, and all Israel will be saved, meaning all the elect among the Israelites. All those remnants down through time in every age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So what then is the mystery? What is this mystery that Paul wants these Gentile believers to know to keep them from being wise in their own eyes? The mystery, hidden before but now revealed by God, is the manner and method and means by which all 
Israel is saved. This intertwining or interweaving of Israel and the Gentiles, the one affecting the other and vice versa. One author put it this way, there is still a mystery to the salvation of Israel in that it is bound up with the salvation of the Gentiles. Another author put it this way, this interdependence between the salvation of the Gentiles and that of Israel is the substance of the divine mystery. The mystery has reference to the marvelous chain of events that results in Israel's salvation. It points to seemingly contradictory factors which in God's loving and overruling providence are so directed that ultimate salvation for all Israel is affected. So the Gentiles shouldn't be wise in their own eyes because this mystery that has now been revealed is the marvelous way that God fulfills his promise to his old covenant people. Many Israelites rejected Christ and therefore salvation went to the Gentiles, not because they were better, but because God was gracious. But God used that very thing to provoke Israel to jealousy so that the elect remnant of Israelites would be gathered in. He's been doing that since the first coming of Christ and he will continue to do that until the second coming of Christ, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And in this way, all Israel, along with all the elect Gentiles, will be saved. Two trunks intertwining and interweaving into one tree. Truly, we can say God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And isn't that the way God works? It's the way he works in salvation history with Jews and Gentiles, as Paul's talking about here. It's the way he works in our own lives, isn't it? We don't always know what he's doing or why he's ordained certain things to happen in our lives, especially bad things and sad things. But we can take comfort knowing that though he moves in a mysterious way, he moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He's performing wonders, some of which we see, some of which we don't see, some of which we won't see until we arrive in glory. He's driving us down a road that has lots of unexpected twists and turns, but he knows exactly where he's taking us. And he knows exactly how to get there. And even if it's not the way we would have gone, it is the best way. It's the wisest way. And he's going to get us there safe and sound. And when we get there, and we look back over the journey, we will see the marvelous wisdom of his perfect plan. We'll see that the road he took us on, it was just the right road 
It was mysterious to us when we were on the journey, but it will be glorious to us at the end of the journey. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. We can take comfort in that, no matter where we are on the journey. God is leading us. God is guiding us. He's taking us the way we need to go. God is moving in a mysterious way his wonders to perform in our lives. He's moving in a mysterious way his wonders to perform in salvation history, as we see here with the way in which he is gathering in both the fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel, all the elect remnants of Israelites down through time, through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Paul then shows that this salvation for Israel was promised in the Old Testament. Let's look at that now under our third main point. The deliverer will come. Look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written... The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. So if all Israel is going to be saved, they need a savior, right? If they're going to be delivered, they need a deliverer. And Paul's quoting from Isaiah here the promise that the deliverer will come. The long-expected Messiah. And of course, he has come, hasn't he? The promise was that the Deliverer would come, and the fulfillment is that the Deliverer did come. A baby was born in Bethlehem. The Son of God incarnate, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 14, verse 7 says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. That has happened in the incarnation. Like Zechariah said in Luke 1, listen to these verses in Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him. All our days. And you, child, Zechariah is referring to John the Baptist here, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. All that came when the Deliverer came. He came from Zion, from the place of Zion and from the people of Zion. And he came, as it says here, to banish 
ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob meaning the people of Israel. That was his mission. Jesus' mission was not to be an inspiring moral teacher. Jesus' mission was to die for his people, to deliver us from our sins. Matthew 1.21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He came to banish ungodliness from his people by dying for them on the cross to set them free from their sin. The second quote Paul mentions is in verse 27. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. That is, this will be the fulfillment of my covenant with them, the keeping of my covenant with them. When I take away their sin, I am keeping my covenant with them to take away their sin. Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God promised to banish ungodliness from Jacob and to fulfill his covenant with them by taking away their sin. And that is what he does every time he brings an ethnic Israelite to the saving knowledge of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But isn't that what he does for all his covenant people, including Gentile believers? It's what he's done for all of us who've put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. He has banished ungodliness from us and he's taken away our sin. It's what he does for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus for their salvation. And if you've never done that, let me invite you to do that this morning. Acknowledge your sin to God, before God. Confess your sin to God. Turn from your sin in your heart and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. And he will banish ungodliness from you. He will take away your sin, as it says here. God has banished our ungodliness and taken away our sin in terms of the guilt and the penalty of our ungodliness and our sin. And he continues to banish ungodliness from us and to take away our sin in terms of the power and the presence of our ungodliness and our sin. And one day, he will banish our ungodliness fully and forever. He will take away our sin once and for all. That's because of what Jesus has done for us. And we look forward to that day 
But until that day, we rely on him, we trust in him to continue that good work that he has begun in us. See, what he's doing in us now is a progressive work. It's an incremental work. It's like cleaning out your basement or your garage of junk that needs to be thrown away. It doesn't happen all at once. You don't just go into your garage or your basement and snap your finger and all of a sudden all the junk is removed and everything's clean. No, it's a process, right? You do it little by little. You remove one thing at a time. That process is carried on little by little until it's finished. It's kind of like that with our sanctification. God is working on us every day, little by little, to remove all the junk from our hearts and to make us more like him. He's banishing ungodliness piece by piece, as it were, and making us more godly. Sometimes the work goes quickly. We're thankful for that. Sometimes it goes more slowly. Sometimes, sadly, we let some of the junk back in, don't we? And we need to repent of that when that happens and use the means of grace to participate in the work that God is doing in us. But even when there are setbacks... By the grace of God, the work goes on. It's always progressing. It's always moving forward for the believer. And one day, as I said, when we die or when Christ returns, whichever comes first, all the junk will be gone. All the ungodliness will be banished fully. All our sins will be taken away fully and finally and forever. That is what God will do. That is what he has covenanted to do for all his chosen people, for all the ransomed church of God, the fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the end, every single one of the elect will be gathered in. One author said, if all Israel indicates, as it does, that not a single elect Israelite will be lacking when the roll is called up yonder, then the fullness of the Gentiles similarly shows that when the attendance is checked, every elect Gentile will answer present. Not one of the sheep the good shepherd laid down his life for will be lost, will be missing. All those he has purposed to save will be saved. None will be lost. All the elect will be gathered in. None will be left behind. Again, as we close, I'll say once more, this should give us confidence in evangelism. We can know that 
God in his mercy and kindness will use our fumbling evangelism to gather in the elect according to the wisdom of his sovereign plan so we can share the gospel with everyone with confidence in the power and purpose of our God. This should also help us to trust in the sovereignty of God over the salvation of sinners, to trust God's sovereign plan for each person, to trust him with how that person we're talking to responds to the gospel we're telling them. Of course, we want everyone to respond in faith and repentance and be saved. But we can trust the sovereignty of our God over the salvation of sinners. This should also grow in us gratitude for our own salvation. Because we know we deserve eternal wrath. But instead, we have eternal life through Christ. And our gratitude should grow more and more each day as we grow in the gospel. And finally, this should increase our anticipation of the day, our longing for the day when the last one will be gathered in and our Lord will return. We don't know when that day will come, but we do know that it will come. And we can look forward to it with eager anticipation. So God's purpose to save all his chosen people will be accomplished He will save the fullness of the Gentiles. He will save all Israel, all the remnants of elect Israelites down through time until Christ returns. And then all the ransomed church of God will be saved to sin no more. Ungodliness will be banished permanently from the kingdom. And God will take away our sins forever never to return. That's what we have to look forward to, all because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, how we thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for saving the full number of the Gentiles and all the remnants of Israel, all the sheep you laid down your life for as the good shepherd on the cross. Thank you for the truths you've revealed to us in these verses. Please take them and plant them deep in our hearts. And then please bring forth the fruit of them in our lives. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.